0: where we're looking at some significant conversations that Jesus had with men and women through the Gospel of John. Last Sunday, uh, Josh Jacobson walked us through Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well and uh, did just an excellent job of uh, helping us to see some things that were going on in uh, in that conversation. Today, we're going to be in John 5. Uh, looking at a conversation Jesus had with a paralyzed man. And as we look at this conversation, we'll have the verses up on the screen. Uh, You can uh, follow along that way. You may want to follow along with a Bible app or a, a paper Bible if you have that with you. If you're here this morning and you don't have a paper Bible and you'd like to follow along that way, our ushers are coming down the aisle, and if you'll just signal them somehow... You know, however you want to signal them you you do that, and they'll they'll get you one of uh, those Bibles uh, before we uh, dive into this story, let's pray together. God thank you that these uh, conversations, these stories have been uh, preserved for us in in the Bible. Uh, we believe that they have been preserved because Uh, You intend for us to learn something from them. Uh, You intend uh, for these stories to inform our own conversations with you, our own lives uh, lived in response to who you are and what you have done. And so we pray as we come to this conversation this morning that you would uh, give us ears Uh, to hear eyes, uh, to to see, um, uh, and hearts, really, most of all, to to receive what it is you might have to say to us through this story. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we're in John chapter 5. That's on page 856 in the Bibles that the ushers just handed out. And before we get to the actual conversation, John uh, sets up this story for us. He describes the the setting, gives some context to this whole thing. Uh, And that begins at verse 1 of chapter 5, which says, After this, there was a Jewish feast, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew which has five covered walkways. A great number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people were lying in these walkways. Now a man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. Uh, John begins by telling us that there was a Jewish feast. We don't know uh, what feast or, or festival this was. There's a lot of speculation about which of the the Jewish feasts this this may have been, but John didn't tell us. And uh, what we take from that is it's not that important to this story, or John would have told us. It's not the main point. But at one level, at least, uh, this feast seems to be what brought Jesus to Jerusalem. John tells us that there's a pool there near the sheep gate, Uh, The the Sheep Gate is in the northeast wall of the uh, old city of Jerusalem. Uh, We we think that it probably got its name because that's where the sheep were brought into the city for uh, sacrifices made in the temple. John describes the pool as having five covered walkways. And he he says there uh, that there was a great number of sick people gathered there at the pool. Some translations, maybe yours, say a multitude. Uh, the the Greek word here is uh, plethos. It's the word we get plethora from. Uh, there were a lot of people there, okay? Hundreds at least, maybe a thousand or, or more. Uh, for a long time, there was some uh, concern that this maybe wasn't even an accurate story because there wasn't any evidence of a pool like this, But in 1964, archaeologists actually uncovered uh, this pool, and it's huge. It's the size of a football field, and it's 42 feet deep. This is a big pool of of water, um, which sort of helps us understand the the huge crowd that, that John says we're there, a great number, a great multitude of six sick people. Why are they there? Let's look at verse 4. Uh-oh. Where'd verse 4 go? Huh? If you're reading from the King James Version or, or an old, old version of the New American Standard Bible, you've got a verse 4. The rest of us got shorter to verse. Not really. What's going on here? Uh, where, where's verse four? Well, the, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of John's gospel don't have verse four. Uh, verse four shows up in later manuscripts, probably we think as a, a like a note in the margins, maybe like some of you write in your Bibles, right? And then At some point, that just got brought in to the main text. Um, So what does this elusive verse 4 say? Well, here it is uh, together with verse 3. A great number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people were lying in these walkways, and then a bracket waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. Now, we don't know if this is true or if it was a myth. Uh, It it doesn't really matter uh, whether it was an angel who stirred the waters or whether it was some kind of... Uh, underground spring, as, as some Bible scholars speculate, um, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but it does shed light on why this multitude of people were there, and it helps explain the answer that the paralyzed man gives in verse uh, 7. Uh, the people gathered there believed that when the water was stirred or troubled, if they were the first person in, they would be healed of whatever sickness they had. That's why they were there. People still do this kind of thing today, right? Uh, uh, Lord, France is is one famous location uh, where people claim to receive healing. Uh, I was looking up some other sites of of miraculous healing. I hadn't heard of this one before, but Pishtigo, Wisconsin is another one. It doesn't sound nearly as Elegant as the as French town, but apparently uh, That's that's a location where people receive m- miraculous healings uh, There there are weeping statues of Mary there are bleeding statues of Jesus uh, In the 2008 movie Henry Poole is here uh, a neighbor lady thinks she sees an outline of Jesus including his holy shoulder Uh, in the the stucco siding of of Henry Poole's house, which results in scores of people invading his backyard in hopes of receiving a miracle. Uh, It's common today for people to look for miraculous healings in uh, places like this. Again, maybe the angel came and stirred the water, maybe the water stirred another way, but as John Piper, I think, rightly notes, how the pool worked is not essential to the story. The fact that Jesus worked is essential to the story. Okay? I'm going to say one more thing about verse 4 before we move on. Uh, there are relatively few places in the Bible that have been updated because of more recent manuscripts being uh, discovered. It's, I think it's like one-half of 1%. Are, are somewhat in question, right? And none of them, none of them uh, makes the slightest difference in who Jesus is or, or how we come to know him. In fact, no major doctrine uh, is changed or challenged by any of these passages unless you're into snake handling and stuff. And then, then you might be concerned. What? Sorry, you can look that up on your own. What I'm trying to say is this. You're, you're into the snake handling bits? I'm sorry. We'll, we'll talk afterwards. But Here's what I'm trying to say. Your Bible's reliable. Whether or not you got a verse 4. Okay, It's reliable. All right. Uh, that's all the time I want to spend on this. Maybe I shouldn't even have brought it up. But if I hadn't, then someone would have gone, How co- what, what's the deal with verse 4? Right? So back to verse 5. John tells us that out of that multitude, plethora of sick, blind, lame, and and paralyzed people, there was one man who had been disabled for 38 years, 38 years. We don't know how long exactly he had been at the pool. We just know that he's been disabled for 38 years and been at this pool uh, for a long time. Uh, Maybe his parents left him there as a child. It's it's quite possible that that's the answer and that's how long he's been there. Uh, Maybe he, he got somebody to take him there later on in his life. Uh, We don't know. But he's been there a long time. We'll see in verse 7 that he doesn't have anyone to help him get into the water. So he's on his own at this pool. Uh, And like many who are confined to a life of paralysis, uh, I imagine he has sores. Uh, Any of you who have taken care of disabled people know that that sometimes is uh, the result. Right? Right? But for this man, these sores are not uh, being dressed or addressed by by anyone. He may not even be able to take care of the most basic hygiene needs, including dealing with bodily waste. Uh, He's in a pretty bad place. And the only hope this man has out of this prison that he's in is an occasional stirring of the water in the pool. And sadly, maybe ironically, it promises to reward the fastest and the strongest who can move to the front of the line, elbow their way past the other sick people and get into the pool, which leaves this man helpless and hopeless. So there he lies in his own mess and no way out of it. Maybe you've known that kind of helpless feeling, or known someone who has that kind of helpless feeling. A helpless feeling that that sometimes gives way to hopeless feelings, or despair, despondency. Maybe bitterness uh, is, is attached to it. There's no way out. What's the use, some of them ask? No one cares. No one notices, except that's not quite true, is it? Because one person does. Verse six it says, "Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time." And for a moment, I just want us to look at the first part of verse six, because there are two very important truths in this verse that we need to understand. If if we miss these, we'll miss something very, very important about who Jesus is. Jesus saw him and he knew him. In that multitude of hundreds, maybe thousands of people, Jesus saw him and knew him. And that's true for every one of you today. Today. This man had never met Jesus, but Jesus knew him. He knew him like he knew the Samaritan woman that we looked at last week. He knew him like he knew Nicodemus that we met the week before, or Nathaniel that we met in that first week of this series. Jesus knew him, everything about him. He knew what the sickness was. He knew how long he had been at that pool. He knew about the friends and family who had abandoned him. And he also knew this man's spiritual condition. He knew it all, all of it. And then Jesus asks him a question. Do you want to get well? Do you want? To get well. And if you're listening to this story for the the first time with with eyes and ears that haven't sort of been conditioned uh, to these stories already, uh, you haven't grown up with the flannel graph of these stories, right? This is the first time you're hearing this question, you might be saying, To yourself, how dare you ask that question, Jesus? What is wrong with you? This man has been helpless at this pool for a long time, probably years. He's gone to the only place he knows to get help, only to be continually left out of the healing that the pool offers. And Jesus has the nerve to say, do you want to be healed? As I said in my little blurb in the bulletin this, this morning, I think this is either the most profound question or maybe the dumbest question. It's either a calloused response to human suffering or possibly the compassionate concern of a loving Savior. Now, just so you know, I believe Jesus is the most brilliant human who ever lived. So it's certainly not a dumb question. Is it a calloused one? I'm also certain it's not that. Uh, What gives me certainty on that is the very character of Jesus. Uh, As if we, we don't have time to go into the latter part of chapter five, but if we do, we're going to see that Jesus has the character of his father. And his father is repeatedly referred to as a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. No less than nine times in the gospel, uh, Jesus is referred to as full of compassion or moved, moved in his bowels by mercy. It's who he is. It's interesting that he's chosen to speak to this disabled man at a pool that is called Bethesda. Why is that significant? Beth means house, as as we've seen in some other names in the Bible. Esda means mercy. House of mercy. Jesus isn't being cruel here, as we'll see shortly, he's, he's about to pour out mercy on this man. I think Jesus' question is profound. I, I believe that seeing and knowing this man as he did made this the only reasonable question to ask this man. I also think it's a question Jesus asks us today. Because sometimes people prefer to stay in their sickness, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual. Sometimes people don't want the change that Jesus offers. Their sickness has begun to define them in ways that they're comfortable with. Some people take on sort of a victim mindset, blaming the world for their misfortune Other times people say, this is just the way God made me. And they excuse uh, certain sins that they've become comfortable with. Sort of blaming God for it. God made me this way. So no, I don't think this is a dumb question or a calloused one. I think it's a profound question driven by compassion and mercy. But let's look at the man's response. It's very interesting. Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And in verse 7, the man replies, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get into the water, someone else goes down there before me. Now, Bible scholars debate about why the man answered in this way. At face value, it's probably a truthful statement. He had no one to help him into the pool when the water was stirred up. I was thinking, even if he did, I'm not sure what he planned to do when they dropped him in 40 feet of water. I mean, if this thing didn't work, he's he's going down like a boat anchor, right? But what's more interesting to me is that he didn't answer Jesus' question. He, He didn't say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean like the man with leprosy did. He he didn't beg to be healed like blind Bartimaeus, saying, I want to see. He didn't answer the question like the Roman centurion who said, Lord, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. He didn't do that. Instead, he seems to give an excuse. I mean, he doesn't even say, yes, I want to be healed, but... Or, of course I want to be healed. That's why I'm here. But he just sort of puts this excuse out there and and, and leaves it. I know people like this. (laughs) You do too, probably. One excuse after another is given for why they are stuck in the circumstances that they're in. And, of course, it's rarely their fault. Right? Right? You know people like that. Well, what happens next is pretty remarkable. Um, there, there are many, many times that Jesus heals people because of their faith. Jesus commends faith all the time, right? Whether it's the faith of the sick person or someone else who is displaying faith on behalf of another person. Think of the four friends who brought their friend and cut a hole in the roof and, and lowered him down. And, and that story tells us that Jesus said to them, "The, the, the faith of his friends is what healed him, right? Jesus commends faith, but once in a while, once in a while, he heals someone just simply because he believes it'll bring glory to God. And this seems to be one of those instances because there's no evidence of faith in this man anywhere in this story. None. None. Jesus just decides to heal him. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Immediately, the man was healed, and he picked up his mat and started walking. There there was something in Jesus' words. It's a a command. It it may have been a very forceful command, command. We, we can't tell tone here, but something compelled this man to obey. There, there doesn't seem to have even been enough time for the man to, f- to, to feel the strength returning to his legs after 38 years. You know, you, you'd think it would sort of maybe start here and, and work its way down, and you could feel the tingling that sometimes faith healers describe. You know, I felt warm, I felt this tingling, and then I drop my crutches. No, immediately this man is healed, and immediately he starts walking. And once he starts walking, he keeps walking. That's the tense here. And we don't see the behavior of others who Jesus healed, the the, the deep gratitude for experiencing God's mercy. Uh, we, We don't Uh, See the behavior of the man that Peter healed in Acts chapter 3. The man who went walking and leaping and praising God, right? The language John uses here implies that he started walking and just kept going. And then John drops the bombshell. It's this ominous parenthetical statement at the end of verse 9. John says... Now that day was the Sabbath. Did you hear it? If there's a, if there's a musical underscore uh, to this story, John says, Now that day was the Sabbath, and we hear dum, don, <laughs> Something bad's gonna happen here, right? John's first readers would have, would have heard that in their heads the moment they read those words, because now the drama is really going to heat up, and it, and it does, as the man who has just been healed encounters the Jewish authorities. Verse 10, so the Jewish authorities said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath and you are not permitted to carry your mat. We asked ourselves earlier if Jesus' question, do you want to be healed, was cruel or, or callous. I, I hope I've, I've shown you that it's not. This statement, it's cruel. These Sabbath police have so twisted God's intent for that day, a day of experiencing God's restoration that they can't even acknowledge that God has done something miraculous in this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Rather than praise God for the healing power that has restored this man's health, they accost him for violating not the law. We need to be really clear about that. The Old Testament law didn't say don't carry your mat. It said don't work on the Sabbath. And these guys came up with a whole list of things that that might mean, including carrying your mat on the Sabbath, right? It's their interpretation of the law. And this is what legalism does. It's blind to the works of grace and mercy in a person's life. And it focuses instead on keeping rules and controlling people. It's abusive and it's evil. John Johnson says in his commentary that these men are legalists doing what legalists do. Reducing life to technicalities. They use their codes and their holy days to reign on the celebration. Their laws are not intended to enhance holiness or expand worlds. They are cruel instruments of oppression. And then I, I think this is so insightful. He says, They teach a law, they teach a love of the law and fail to teach a law of love. Let me say that again. They teach a love of the law and failed to teach a law of love. They're missing the point, right? Many of you know Michael Card for his beautiful music. What you may not know is that he's also a a really brilliant theologian, um, and he has a commentary on on the book of John, and uh, in this story he calls uh, the, the man who is healed the man of excuses, Because every time this guy talks, he he makes an excuse. He did it in verse 7. I don't have anyone to put me in the water. And he does it again here in verse 11. The Jewish authorities say, you you, uh, can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. And he answers them, no, I'm sorry. Oops. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Blames Jesus except he doesn't know who it was. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your mat and walk? But the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped out since there was a crowd in that place. When he's confronted, this guy takes no responsibility, but immediately blames the guy who told him to pick up the mat and walk, which might might seem innocent enough. This guy's probably in no position to argue with these Jewish authorities. But we're beginning to see a pattern in this guy, right? A pattern of excuse making. A a pattern that we would do well to guard ourselves against. Uh, When he's asked who told him to do it, he honestly answers that he doesn't know who the man was. He doesn't. He never took the time to find out who Jesus was. He just took his healing and ran, right? John even seems to give him a bit of an out by saying that Jesus had slipped away because of the crowd. And and this has led some some Bible scholars to to cut the man a little bit of slack here. What happens in the next scene leaves no question, I think, about this guy's character. We come to part two of the conversation with Jesus. Jesus. Part one, very short. Do you want to be healed? I don't have anyone to put me in the water. Part two, verse 14. After this, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, Look, you have become well. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What's going on here? Well, we know from passages like Luke 13, John 9, and some others that Not all calamities or illnesses are are a result of some specific sin. We also know from passages like James 5, 1 Corinthians 11, some places in the Book of Acts that sometimes sin does lead to sickness and sometimes even death. We're not told what this man's sin was. We're not told that it was the cause of his sickness. We do know he was a sinner because Jesus said, stop sinning. It seems that there was some kind of besetting sin that Jesus knew about when he saw him and knew him, some kind of besetting sin that had become a regular part of this man's life. Maybe it was a lack of gratitude that we see in this story, but maybe it was Maybe that's why he's got no friends. Maybe it was his excuse-making, refusing to take responsibility for his own actions. Maybe it was the bitterness that had taken over um, and was, was spiritually paralyzing him. We don't know. We just know Jesus said, stop it. Stop it. I'm reminded here of the passage that Jennifer read for us earlier. The passage talked about the God of compassion and mercy who is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, a, a God who lavishes unfailing love to a thousand generations. Exodus 34 is where that statement originates and then it, it shows up really all, all through Scripture. Exodus 34 tells us that that same God will not leave unrepentant sin unpunished. And and this is what Jesus seems to be talking about with this man. That the something worse that will happen to this man is, is probably not just another ailment. If he doesn't stop sinning by rejecting God... Which ultimately, that's what every sin is. It's a rejection of God. If he doesn't stop that, he's going to find himself in eternal torment that is far worse than his 38 years as a paralytic. Last week, Josh talked about the searing gaze of Christ's love. I think that's what Jesus was trying to do with this man. Jesus sees him and he knows him. And Jesus is saying, if you continue on this track of rejecting Messiah, of rejecting God, something far worse is going to happen to you. I think it's a warning that's coming from a place of compassion and love. But if this man ignores the warning, it it will be fatal for him. And I feel like I'd be remiss this morning if I, if I didn't put that same warning out there to, to everyone who's hearing me today, whether in this room or, or watching from home. God is compassionate and merciful and slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. He's a God who lavishes unfailing love to a thousand generations. But if you reject His loving offer of spiritual healing, of of life with him, eternally speaking, really bad things are going to happen to you. It's interesting. Jesus could physically heal this man in an instant without the man's consent. He just did it because he wanted to. No big deal, right? The man didn't say he wanted to be healed, but Jesus did it anyway. The same is not true, though, on the spiritual level. And that's why Jesus gives this man the warning. If you keep rejecting God, there's nothing I can do to help you. We don't know what the end of this man's life was like. We don't know if at some point he heeded Jesus' words. All we're told about him is what happens next in verse 15. Jesus gives him this warning, and verse 15 says, the man went away and informed the Jewish authorities that Jesus was the one who had made him well. How's that for a big old thank you? Don't know for sure if the man knew what would happen when he told the Jewish authorities who, um, who, the, who the guy was who had told him to pick up his mat and walk. Suppose you could argue that he had no idea what the outcome was or would be. This man consistently ignores Jesus' questions and warnings throughout the story. He, he seems to be set against What Jesus is doing. I was was thinking in his own way, he plays the part of Judas in this story, betraying Jesus to the authorities. And as a transition into the next part of the story, John tells us the results of this man's betrayal, verse 16. Now, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish authorities began persecuting him. So Jesus told them, my father is working until now, and I too am working. It's okay for God to work on the Sabbath. For this reason, verse 18, for this reason the Jewish authorities were trying even harder to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. In this brief exchange with the Jewish authorities, Jesus has sealed his doom. John Piper says, In the eyes of these Jewish authorities, he is both a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer making himself equal with God, and they will kill him for it. And of course, if you know the rest of the story, you know that that is exactly true. I really wish this conversation ended like the one with Nathaniel, who immediately started following Jesus. Jesus. Or that it had maybe another mention at the, at the end of the book of John, uh, like, like Nicodemus, that this man eventually started following Jesus. Or, or maybe like the, the woman that we saw last week who, who went back to her town and evangelized the whole town. Come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could it be the Messiah? But it doesn't end that way. It ends with an unanswered question. And I wonder if that's because John wants us to wrestle with the question that Jesus asked. You want to be healed? The, the word that Jesus uses for well, when he, when he says, do you want to be made well, uh, means wholeness. And, and it can mean far more than just physical healing. It, it can refer to the wholeness of shalom, where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. And so I think for all of us this morning, Jesus's question sort of hangs in the air, waiting for us to respond. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to continue in whatever brokenness it is that that now defines you? Or do you want that deep spiritual healing that Jesus offers? Some of you, I know, are hearing that question for the very first time, like the man at the pool. What will your answer be? Will you make excuses for why why you're still there? Or will you say, yeah, I want to be whole. And I believe, Jesus, that you can do that. Some of you received spiritual healing from Jesus a long time ago, but some of you continue to dabble in that brokenness and sickness because you only want to be partially healed, not really whole. Like that man. Jesus could heal his body, but the man had to want to be made whole. And so to you, I, I would say, what will your response be when Jesus says, Stop sinning or something worse will happen. Remember, these aren't judgmental or condemning words that are coming from Jesus. They're compassionate and merciful words of warning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Uh, and They're going to lead us in a, in a prayer that is one we should all pray every day. Um, it's also... A prayer that I believe Jesus loves to answer. He loves to answer. It's interesting. This this man in this story. He. Uh, He never really acknowledged what his real need was. He he had a limited scope of what his real need was. Uh, And I think the proper answer to Jesus' question isn't even, yeah, I want to be healed, but it's, Lord, I need you. He said, I don't have anyone to get me in the water, and if we let last week's story inform us a little bit, the living water was standing right in front of him. Right? Lord, I need you. That needs to be our prayer. David? David?